Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church Podcast. Over the coming months, we as a church are going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed together, an ancient summary of the Christian faith that has traveled through thousands of years and functioned as an anchor of truth in a constantly shifting world. The Creed presents truth claims that can be explored, that provoke questions, that come directly from scripture and that are owned by a community. Thanks for joining us. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Joy. Good morning, everyone. My name is Rich, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, and I'm going to be taking us through this next part of our meeting together. Um, if you've been around for a few weeks, you'll know that we're in a series exploring the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is an ancient statement of faith uh, that helps us to explore the wonder of who God is, all that he's done, uh, and everything that he's inviting us into now. Uh, and last week, Mike looked at Jesus' death how in his death he embraces our humanity, even to death on a cross, a method of execution designed to strip away a person's humanity and identity in order that Jesus could share his identity as a child of God with our humanity. We looked at how Jesus goes down, 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 into suffering, into crucifixion, into death. And this morning, we're going to be picking up some of those light and cheery themes again um, by considering what it means that Jesus descended into hell, um, a statement which, I have to be honest, if you ask me to describe the good news of what Jesus has done, uh, that wouldn't be high on my list of things that I was excited to talk about. Um, and then a bit that I'm maybe a little bit more excited to talk about, which is the fact that he rises again uh, and all that means for us today. And so that's where we're going uh, over the next 20, 25 minutes or so. 
Earlier this week, though, uh, I heard a story that I want to share with you. It's a story about a city uh, in America called uh, Rodney, Mississippi. And Rodney was founded uh, in the late 1700s, uh, right on the banks of the Mississippi River, which meant that it was in the perfect position to capitalize on the economic boom at that time. Uh, the land uh, around the city was incredibly fertile. It was overflowing with abundance. And so you'd have ships coming up uh, from the coast, up the river, docking at Rodney, bringing wealth and resources and luxury. It was a center for commerce and for innovation uh, and for growth. In fact, when a vote was taken to decide the state capital uh, of the new state of Mississippi, uh, Rodney was only three votes away uh, from becoming the capital. It was a massively important place at the time. Uh, and then something changed. Something changed. The Mississippi River changed course. Uh, one of its banks had built up, and the river found an easier way to go, uh, a new route for it to navigate, that meant that rather than being a commercial hub right on the banks of the river, uh, Rodney was now stranded in no man's land, two miles away from the water. And uh, almost overnight, the city died. Uh, businesses left, people moved away, uh, within a few years, only a handful of people were left. This is what it looks like today. It is a ghost town. Um, you can barely reach it uh, anymore. You have to kind of work your way down country lanes, past kind of trees and through thickets in order to find uh, these shells of buildings that are left. And uh, with all due respect to the people of Rodney, um, hopefully... Uh, none of them are in the room today. Um, that would be a bit of a surprise if it was. Um, I think that's quite a poignant example. It certainly struck me uh, deeply of the biblical picture of hell. And for each of us, that's a word that will kind of immediately flash up um, some different things that make us think about. But much of our imagery for hell in contemporary society comes not from the Bible, but from medieval artists, those who took biblical illustrations and presented them as reality for people to look at, Michelangelo and Da Vinci and Dante with his Inferno. And if we're not careful, we can let the idea of some kind of fiery torture chamber become the dominant image in our imagination, when really... It's nothing like what the Bible teaches. The Apostle Paul boils it down to this in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. It is a place of eternal ruin away from the presence of the Lord and his majestic power. And I think Paul really puts his finger uh, on the crux of it there. The key feature is separation from God's presence. It's isolation from the source of all life and light and goodness and hope and joy and peace. See, God is far more entwined with the ongoing life of the universe than we often give him credit for. He didn't just wind up the toy at the very beginning and let it go, sit back and let the universe take care of itself. No, he's intimately involved in sustaining uh, in every second of every minute of every day the very fabric 
of our existence, the laws of physics, the chemical structures of reality, the biological imperatives that constantly create and recreate life. But just like Rodney's separation from the river, if you take away the very thing that is bringing life, of course what you're left with is death. Of course what you're left with is a ghost town. How could you not be? Separation from the creator means de-creation. That's at the heart of the picture language that the biblical authors use. De-creation, being consumed like ash in a fire, shrouded in darkness like in the depths of the earth. If God is an optional extra, a bit part addition to our life, then hell is a prospect that is impossible for us to reconcile. But if he is who he says he is, if he truly is the source of all, then of course to be separated from him means isolation. Because how could it not? The thing is, that doesn't actually make anything easier for us. Um, that doesn't make hell a nicer concept for us to think about. Um, if anything, makes it worse. It makes it a tragic prospect, a prospect completely against God's heart and his desire to bring life and light and goodness and hope and joy to all of creation. But it is the unavoidable result of a consistent no to life with Jesus at the center. To be apart from the source of light can only mean darkness. To be apart from the source of life can only mean death. To be apart from the source of love can only mean lonely isolation. What is Jesus's response though to this reality? What does he do? What does God do in the face of darkness and evil and isolation? His reaction to the presence of such a place of abject brokenness and pain is to enter in. And this is why this line in the creed is good news. It's good news because Jesus' desire when confronted with such a place is to enter in. It's to enter in to fill the nothingness of that existence with his reality. Because of who he is, it breaks his heart that such a place would exist. It drives him to action. He cannot leave things as they are. He cannot let death have the final word. It's at odds with everything about his character. His heart's cry demands that he go to such a place. Just like when Jesus walked the earth, his heart was for those who are the most broken, the most vulnerable, the most isolated. Jesus' heart is always to go to those places, to those people. That's what he does at the cross. That's why he descends into the grave. That's why these words, he descended into hell, matter. Jesus enters the nothingness of humanity, estranged from God, at the cost of everything he has. He goes to the most heartbreaking place, the most abandoned place, the most dead place in the whole universe, 
in order to fill it with his wholeness. The son of God goes to the place of utter isolation in order to fill it with his presence. The one who spoke light into being descends to the place of utter darkness in order to bring illumination as the light of life. Dorothy Sayers writes this, God did not abolish the fact of evil. He transformed it. He didn't stop the crucifixion. He rose from the dead. Even the place of ultimate decreation becomes for Jesus a place to create and transform and redeem. And having filled death with life, of course, he couldn't stay in the grave. Having broken its power, of course, it couldn't hold him. He's here to change everything. For each of us, for all of us, what we need in our brokenness and our darkness and our isolation, what we need in the millions of decisions we make, millions of actions we take, millions of words we speak every day that reveal hearts which are not centered on Jesus, what we need is to be reconnected to the source of life. That's what Jesus does through his descent and his resurrection. He doesn't just reroute the river to reconnect it to Rodney. He plunges into the depths of the darkness and emptiness, knowing that as he rises, he will become, for anyone who calls on his name, a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. That's who he is in the midst of that place. That's what the resurrection does. It changes everything. G.K. Chesterton writes, on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to that place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world, as they knew it, had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth. And in the appearance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool not of the evening, but of the dawn. The resurrection stands as the very center point of history and the center point of the Christian faith. If it didn't happen, then Christianity is worthless. Christians are to be pitied above all else. That's what Paul says. But if the resurrection is true, then it is a new beginning. It's a new Eden. It's a reestablishing of all that God had once declared good. God and man restored to right relationship through the God-man, Jesus, that they might once again walk together. It proves once and for all that the brokenness and death of the world, this world, the world we're living in, the world we're experiencing every day, when we look to the news and look around us and see all the brokenness and darkness there is, it proves that all of that is insufficient to match the wholeness and life and hope found in him. 
And so death itself instead is swallowed up in victory. Its sting can no longer last. The creation, new creation, inaugurated and announced in the midst of the old. Because the resurrection is at its heart something that God has staked everything on. And because of that, it is an announcement to the world. As Jesus is resurrected, it's an announcement to the whole of creation that God, not death, not brokenness, not sin, will have the final say. As Jesus rolls away the stone, it's an announcement that everything he said about himself is true. He is completely vindicated as the promised one, beloved son of the father, filled with the spirit, come to rescue his people. As Jesus steps out of the tomb, gloriously alive, it's an announcement that nobody is beyond the reach of God's love and mercy, that redemption and forgiveness and welcome are open to all. As Jesus breathes in the cool morning air, it's an announcement that the Holy Spirit is at work breathing life into the people of God, even now, to recreate and regenerate them. As Jesus walks through the garden, it's an announcement that the first fruits have come. Like a farmer harvesting the first of the crop, which proves that the rest is coming. As Jesus is reborn, so too will we be. Death wasn't the end for him, and because of that, it won't be for us. As Jesus puts one foot in front of another, it's an announcement that the future is physical. God has clothed himself in human flesh, now and forever, uniting his divinity with our humanity. And our eventual destiny isn't to float off up to a disembodied heaven, but to be transformed as he was in an earth that is transformed. As Jesus tenderly greets Mary in the garden, it's an announcement that his father is now our father. There is complete adoption by faith into the family of God, belonging and home that's open to all. As Jesus encounters Thomas presenting his scars, it's an announcement that there is no scar that we are carrying, which is beyond his ability to redeem and restore. Jesus' resurrection is an announcement to the whole of creation that everything has changed forever. The power behind all darkness and sickness and injustice and pain has been broken at the cross. And that even as we wait for the final fulfillment of that to come in the promise that one day everything will be rescued and redeemed. Just as on D-Day, uh, it marked the turning point of World War II. The Allies broke through. They broke the back of the Nazis. And even though the war itself would rumble on for another year, the decisive blow was struck in that moment. And so too has the decisive blow been struck against evil and darkness and death on the cross and in the resurrection garden. This is good news. This is good news. 
But it's not just good news, which is uh, an ethereal concept apart from us. This is good news that is deeply personal. It's good news that I believe Jesus wants to come and uh, reveal again to each of us in this moment that we would know that it's good news for us, that we would know that we are caught up in what he's wanting to do in the world because of what he has done through the grave. That just as Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, creating resurrection life by the power of his word, so too his resurrection speaks a word that calls to us, stirring a response of faith that bids us come and receive. God is doing through the gospel what he always intended to do, what he's always called for his people to do, to enter into the fullness of the resurrection life that he has. That just as he has begun the grand project of redemption of all things in raising his son from the dead, he has made us partners and ambassadors in it by making us alive in Christ when we trust in him. Our future is not to live as those in a ghost town, cut off from the source of life. It's to enjoy the presence of the one who is a spring of water welling up to eternal life from within. Romans 8 verse 11 says this, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living in you. Our invitation is to live as those who in the waiting push back the darkness every day. Donna Barber writes this, Jesus' ultimate defiance was of hell and death itself when he rose with all power from the dead. In doing so, he freed us to live out lives of resistance. In fact, he commands it through his mandate to love. We're to live resisting the darkness, pushing it back every day through the way that we live and the way that we love. We're to go out into the world, wherever we've been uniquely placed, to share his resurrection life, which is now within us, with all those that we encounter, to speak love to those who are alone, to bring comfort to those who are broken, to fight for justice for those who are suffering, to offer mercy to those who need forgiveness, to hold out truth to those who are searching in darkness. We're to live as those who are outposts of home, pointing to the one who's come to bring home to all building that home wherever we go and inviting in anyone and everyone who will come. Not because we're the most skilled or experienced or talented or in any way the most suitable or appropriate people for the task, but because we have been summoned and sent. We've been called and caught up by Jesus in his resurrection and in what he wants to do. So the question for us this morning is, do you want to encounter the risen Jesus? Do you want to encounter the same power that conquered the grave? 
Do you want to encounter the one whose resurrection changes everything? Because he's here. He's moving. He's speaking already through the time of worship that we had, through the power of his word. And the band are going to come back up and join me, if that's all right. In a moment, we're going to worship. We're going to sing again of the wonder of who Jesus is. And the invitation and the opportunity in this moment is to just receive the good of all that he has done. It's to be like Lazarus, called and caught up in his resurrection life. There's an opportunity in this moment to lift our gaze, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, to the one who has done what we never could. The one who has entered into the very depths of darkness and brokenness and death to fill them with his life. There is nothing to add. In all the world, there are no philosophies or systems that go higher and wider and deeper and longer than what he has done through his life, death, and resurrection. Nothing that is more comprehensive or more complete. The invitation is simply to come, to take hold by faith of everything that's already been accomplished and receive it with joy. His death achieves it. His resurrection assures it. His invitation is to receive it. Do you want to receive this Jesus this morning? Why don't we stand again together if we're able? We're going to sing of King Jesus, the one who changes everything, the one who bids us come, come and receive, come and see what's been done on your behalf, come and hear my word to you again today, that because of resurrection life, everything has changed, everything has changed.